Last week in our look at Ezra chapter 3, we saw that the first thing the Jews built when they returned to Jerusalem was the altar of sacrifice. Using Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10, I suggested that we, as Christians, have an altar, the cross of Christ. The message of the cross is the gospel. Hope is found nowhere but the cross of Jesus Christ. Secularism doesn't have it, and religious systems, including political ideologies, which are just religious systems without a deity, don't have it. It is at the cross that we begin eternal life. Once that is secured, and I use that word intentionally, by God through Christ, we can begin to live the lives that God prepared us for beforehand, but not before and not without the cross. And once we have repented of our sin and abandoned it at the cross, we can look forward to new life with hope and joy. This week, we are only going to cover the first five verses of Ezra chapter 4. Believe it or not, my original intent was to cover all 24 verses, and I outlined them all. You can go, go look on my desk. I outlined the rest of uh, the passage from verse 6 through 24. Uh, maybe that was overly ambitious. In fact, it definitely was overly ambitious. But once I started digging into what the scripture teaches in this chapter, I had to cut today's message way, way back for the sake of time. There are several things that need to be said before we begin today's message because of the nature of our topic. I don't want anybody to misunderstand today's message. Really important you pay close attention here. I'll mention four or five things. One, the Bible teaches that the people of God have a personal enemy called Satan or the devil. If we take the Bible as true, and we have very good reasons to do so, we must acknowledge the existence of this fallen angel, a being created by God but corrupted by pride. Two, Satan has many helpers whose sole purpose seems to be opposing God and his goodness. Three, it is important to remember that humans are bent towards sin, even without the work of Satan, due to our sinful nature. It is foolish to believe that there is a devil behind every bush, but it is equally as foolish to believe that there are no devils behind any bushes. Satan is not the cause of every evil. Give sinful man his due. Ages ago, there was a comedian, I don't remember his name, Red Skelton maybe, he used to say this, the devil made me do it, and people would laugh. Was, it, was that right, Pete? Okay. Okay, flip. Wilson. Wilson, okay. My apologies to Red Skelton and his family. <laughs> the devil doesn't make anybody do anything unless he's possessed their bodies. He and his minions provide us with opportunities to sin and wait for our sinful natures to take over. And as we read in Job, Satan can do nothing without God's express permission. Furthermore, a mistake that can easily be made, and in fact is commonly made, is equating the church, capital C, with the temple. Nowhere does the New Testament 
even remotely declare this to be true. If any parallel is to be drawn, it is that the temple is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God, which Paul says is the believer. That isn't nearly the whole story because the temple is also a picture of the person of Christ. But for our purposes today, it will be sufficient. With that, let's read Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and we'll pray. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as the king Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. I added verse 6 because we will continue with that thought next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are just grateful to be here again this morning. We are grateful for the blue sky and the sunshine. We are grateful for those that have the opportunity to travel, to go to weddings, to see family. Uh, we need these times, and we need this time together this morning. I pray that our hearts would be lifted up in worship, that we would be focused on one thing and one thing alone, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have promised to be here with us as we gather together, and we pray that by your spirit our eyes would be opened powerfully to the truth of your word. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled today's message, we, had been, we Have an Adversary. Up until now, in Ezra, we haven't encountered any bad guys. The story has been told. King Cyrus let the people go. They headed back to Jerusalem. Now in chapter 4, they begin the work. They finish the altar. And sure enough, the enemy shows up. The children of captivity took up the work. The enemies of Judah and Benjamin, it says, which I will call the Samaritans, and that is their heritage, they appear for the first time here in Ezra chapter 4. We get some important information about these people from 2 Kings chapter 17. Israel was utterly defeated by Assyria, and the king of Assyria took the people of Israel back to Assyria as captives. It was around this time that the land began to be called Samaria and the people Samaritans, after the city that the ten northern tribes eventually adopted as their capital after their split from Judah. Let's read together 2 Kings chapter 17 and we'll begin in verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, 
Ava, Hamath, Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. The Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adremelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. Now you know the hearts of the people that came and offered help. From the passage in Ezra, we don't get a detailed picture, but from here in 2 Kings, we see very clearly who these people are. These people claimed fear of the Lord, but served their own gods too. Interestingly, the worst enemies Judah and Benjamin had were those that said they were Jews and were not. And I think this is what John had in mind when he wrote his letter, uh, the book of Revelation, should ring some bells in your memory there. Uh, actually, we can read Revelation chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. I believe John is writing to the church at the uh, city of Philadelphia, and he writes these words. I, Jesus Christ speaking to the church, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. I think this is a direct uh, relationship that John is writing to this passage in Ezra here, mentioning the synagogue of Satan. The opposition that the enemies of the Jews had in it much of the subtlety of the enemy of our souls. These Samaritans did not have the power to stop the work forcibly, so they tried all the ways they could to do it effectually. The Bible reveals to us that there is a created being called Satan 
whose driving desire is to oppose anything God is trying to do. Jesus' work on the cross removed Satan's power over the lives of those that are Christ's. But Satan is still going about like a roaring lion, and even though he does not have the power to forcibly stop us, he will do anything he can to oppose God's work in and through us. The remainder of Ezra chapter 4 gives us some insight as to how he may go about accomplishing this. So the first thing the Samaritan did, the Samaritans did, they offered their services to build with the Israelites. But this was only so that they might get an opportunity to disrupt the work. So one of the first things that may happen when we begin our Christian walk is that our enemy comes alongside us and offers to help. If Satan looked like the red-skinned, horned, spike-tailed creature he is sometimes portrayed as in popular culture, almost no one would fall for his schemes. But God tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 through 15, that this is not the case. Paul writes, And what I am doing, I will continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This passage by Paul is a striking parallel to our passage in Ezra. Paul is doing the work of the gospel. Others offer to help, but they are false apostles and deceitful workmen, calling themselves apostles of Christ. Food for thought. In order to be a false apostle, a person must claim to be an apostle, but fail to meet the biblical requirement of apostleship. There are several groups today claiming apostleship. Catholics claim to have so-called apostolic authority. Mormons have so-called apostles, 15 of them, I believe. And some Pentecostal groups have so-called apostles. Do their claims measure up to the biblical standard? I suppose that would be determined by how much authority the word of God has in your thinking. The only way to be a false apostle is to claim apostleship and fail to meet the requirements. The offer of these Samaritans was plausible enough and it looked kind. We will build with you, for we seek your God as you do. This was an incredibly dangerous lie. Because it, pardon me, because it contained enough truth to make it plausible. The truth of the matter is, they did not seek God as the Jews did. True worship 
of the one true God of Israel leaves no room for any other. I am reminded of a time when a local man described himself to my sister as a Christian Buddhist. In another interview I heard, a fellow described himself as a Christian Marxist. This is like describing something as a round square or a married bachelor. You can glue the two words together, but when you do, they are absolutely meaningless. Jesus Christ claims absolute exclusivity when it comes to access to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may not like it, but disliking it doesn't change it. These Samaritans did not like the exclusivity that the Jews proclaimed either, because it alienated them from the commonwealth of Israel. But the fact remains, you come to God on his terms or not at all. You come to God on his terms or not at all. The refusal of their help in building the temple was absolutely just. Zerubbabel did not plead to them the law of God, which forbade them to mingle Israelite blood or religion with others, but rather he declared that which would get their attention, the king's commission, which was directed to the Jews only. In doing this, the Jewish leaders had great need of wisdom as well as innocence as Jesus himself instructed his followers in Matthew chapter 10. When we have a chance to speak with an unbeliever, we should carefully consider the person with whom we are speaking and pray for the wisdom of the Lord to guide our words and our conduct. As believers, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit of wisdom and be biblically informed before we can be effective in our witness. Furthermore, we must use our ears twice as much as we use our mouths. That's why God gave us two ears and one mouth. Ask questions. Take a sincere interest in the life and struggles of the person in front of you. A compassionate ear speaks infinitely louder than an arrogant tongue. The other day, I saw a fellow standing at the main intersection there at Highway 16 in Burrard with a sign that read, Jesus heals all diseases. Think carefully about that statement for just a moment. Put yourself, if you can, in the shoes of an unbeliever as you consider what might go through their minds when they read these words. I have several things to mention about this particular tactic. First of all, I might ask, is that the most important message people need to hear about Jesus? Secondly, where in scripture did he get this notion? I'm guessing he took the second half of Psalm 103, verse 3. Half a verse. Is there any chance he may have missed the context? Certainly those who read the sign will miss the context. I'll quote a verse for you as well. I'll quote the whole verse. Job chapter 30, verse 29. 
I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. As you can see, context matters. Psalm 103 is about the forgiveness of sin. It says the Lord forgives all your iniquity. The Lord redeems your life from the pit. The Lord crowns you with love and mercy. The Lord removes your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west. It goes on to say that God remembers that we are dust. Our days are like grass or the flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it is gone. How is this possible if he heals all our diseases? Let me read a few verses for you from 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. Or Second Chronicles chapter 21. And after all this, the Lord struck Jehoram in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. So it seems as though, since we know that the Bible never contradicts itself, it seems as though there's some context missing in the Lord heals all diseases. Thirdly, when people look around with eyes even half open, they see diseases all the time, especially right now. You can't turn on the news without being reminded of it. Even innocent children are dying of diseases every day. In 2018, an estimated 5.3 million children under the age of five died due to disease. Innocent children. So when people see the message that Jesus heals all diseases, they are stuck believing that the sign is either lying or uninformed. Either that or they can no longer trust what their eyes and ears tell them all the time. In my experiences speaking with unbelievers, it is precisely this type of sloganeering that brings reproach on the name of Christ and derision toward his church. Perhaps a better sign might be Jesus offers forgiveness. Or better yet, come and talk to me about Jesus and then use the opportunity to present the gospel in its entirety. Slogans may be catchy, but they tend to incite emotional reactions and act as distractions from the core issues. Do people need Jesus? Absolutely. They desperately need Jesus because they desperately need to be forgiven of their sins so that they can enter into a relationship that will give them eternal life. The Jews in our story were much wiser and more tactful. They found common ground on which they could establish their position. King Cyrus said so. This is one of the reasons I appreciate some of the work of Ray Comfort. The first thing he establishes with the person he is witnessing to is the common ground of sin. From here, he moves to the cross 
and resurrection so that there can be no doubt that the person understands the gospel clearly enough to respond. When this plot failed by the Samaritans, when they were refused for offering help, the Samaritans did what they could to distract the Jews from the work and discourage them in it. Perhaps you too have refused the help of your enemy. You relied on God's wisdom and God's word to carry you through Satan's first attack. That's good. But the enemy isn't done. The Bible says that they weakened their hands by telling them, by telling God's people that it was useless to attempt building the temple. They called them foolish builders. It may be useful here to remember again the New Testament parallel that Paul makes in saying that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The enemy may whisper to us that we have already been so ruined by sin that there's no hope moving forward with the Lord. That is a lie. Listen to the words of Jesus. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And again, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Perhaps one of the most useful little books I've found regarding this issue is a little book called Born Crucified by L.E. Maxwell. By relating the cross as essential to the life of the believer, Professor Maxwell simply and practically shows how an understanding of our identification with Christ in his death and resurrection can, leave, can lead to life as it was meant to be lived. It is by living with a cross-centered perspective that we can have both victory over sin and power to serve God. One of my favorite quotes from the book is this, the cross is the key to all situations as well as to all scripture. That's a powerful quote. I want to stop there just for a moment. This isn't in my notes, but I've spent some time lately engaging with so-called Bible teachers and it's discouraging because they spend nearly all of their time talking about what they're doing or what's happening in their church, events, miracles, signs and wonders, and on and on and on it goes. And I listen carefully. Where's the cross? Where's the cross? Where's the cross, Todd White? Never there. His messages are all about Todd White. Where's the cross? If you're listening to someone and I don't care if they're local, if they're on TV or on the radio, and you listen one week and there's no mention of the cross, don't give up on them just yet. 
But if you listen two weeks and three weeks and still the cross is not the central message, throw that guy under the bus. Christianity is about the cross. It's not about signs and wonders. It's not about all these other events. Christianity is about the cross. And when you miss the cross, you miss the message. Then it's not Christianity. A crossless Christianity is not Christianity. Christ makes that very, very plain. There are those that come to him and they say, Lord, Lord, look at all these wonderful things we've done in your name. Yeah, but I never knew you. Because the only way to know me is through the cross. So please, folks, if I fail in this manner, bring it to my attention. I try to make the cross the central point of every message, and I know I fail sometimes. But I hope we never go two or three weeks without thinking about the cross of Christ. If I do, I've failed you. And if anyone else does, they've failed you. Then they told the Jews that they had begun what they would never be able to finish. Don't let anyone ever take away your assurance of heaven. Toward the end of 1 John, John writes these words, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, listen carefully, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not a wishy-washy thing. Or Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Capital D. Don't let anyone ever take away your assurance of heaven if you have trusted Christ. Furthermore, the Samaritans hired counselors against the Jews who pretended to advise them for the best. Our enemy's next strategy is to bring against us people of intelligence, charisma, and influence to cause us to doubt the truth as clearly presented to us in the scriptures. This is what our young people face in school and college and university every day. And this is where Christian apologetics can be such a powerful tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Finally, the Samaritans tried to discourage the men of Tyre and Sidon from furnishing the Jews with building supplies. Economic persecution has been a consistent and effective tool against Christians for 2,000 years. God reveals to us in the final book of the Bible that it will be a tool that is used again. And the enemy didn't stop here. This, is, this only began a seemingly endless barrage of persecution. The remainder of chapter 4 gives us many examples of attempts that were made to prevent God's people from completing the work to which they were called. Not all of these tactics will be used against you in your walk with the Lord. Maybe it will only be one or two. When you read through this chapter, ask the Lord to open your eyes to his word and give you wisdom to discern where your weak spot is, where the enemy may launch, if he hasn't already, an attack on you 
to prevent you from living the abundant life? Has the enemy disguised himself as an angel of light and offered you a false apostle to guide you into truth that is deeper, let's say, than the word of God? Has he told you that past sins disqualify you from walking with Jesus? Has he told you that you cannot know that you will go to heaven, that you may not make it in the end? Has your trust in the truthfulness of God's word been trampled by some teacher or professor? Does the prospect of economic hardship keep you awake at night? We have been told by God in today's passage that these are the tactics of the enemy of our souls designed to take away our peace and stagnate the work of the Lord in our lives. And they are all deceptions and lies. Jesus Christ is the truth, and it is in him we trust. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in many ways, today's passage is hard. It's hard to imagine that the enemy wants to come alongside us and deceive us into believing that he is trying to help us. There are so many false apostles and false teachers out there that deceive us into thinking that they are trying to help us, that they are servants of the Lord when they are instruments of Satan. And so many fall for it. We lose sight of the cross. We lose sight of the Savior. We are distracted by the flashy, by the exciting. But there stands the cross, an instrument of death. And that is where we need to point our eyes. I pray for each person in here and anyone listening that your spirit would open our eyes to this truth, that we would not be deceived by the enemy who claims to desire to help us. There are other ways the enemy attacks us. We all have our own weaknesses. We're all living in these bodies that succumb to temptation when we are not walking closely with you. <clears throat> I ask especially this morning, that where each of us is weak, that is where you would make us strong. Not because of who we are, but because of the cross of Jesus Christ and his sanctifying work in our lives. Help us to have our eyes open to the truth. Have a, help us to have our ears closed to the lie. Help us to be in the word so that we can recognize the counterfeit when we see it. Father, you have been so good to us. We thank you for this passage in which, in the form of just a story, you reveal to us the types of tactics that our enemy will use against us. And you warned us beforehand. Thank you that in your mercy and in your grace you have done this. Help us not to be neglectful of these admonitions and these warnings, but to walk in the light of truth as led by the Holy Spirit of God. 
We thank you for this morning. We thank you for each person here. We pray your mercies on those that are traveling. Pray your special mercy on Jeannie and her family as they are dealing with the tragedy of early death. Pray that you would go with us as we go from here, that we might be a light to a dark world. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.